Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Todd Haynes' 1998 love letter to glam rock, Velvet Goldmine. I paused there because I realized I'm not technically a redhead anymore, so I, I guess I can't really say I'm a redheaded stepchild. I mean... I mean, like, it's there underneath the peroxide, but, sure. like, I'm blonde now, temporarily. My pedanticism more says when you were a child, step or otherwise, you were redheaded. Yeah. So... And I'm technically not a stepchild either. I mean, I come from a blended family, but like my parents are both my genuine parents. Right. So really what you're saying is the entire time, every episode, 79 recordings in a row. It's all a lie. (laughs) But if we're going to talk about movies where people do crazy things with their identity and their hair... Velvet Goldmine is a good movie to start with. Velvet Goldmine's a very good movie to do that. Lots, big hair movie. Big hair movie. The wig budget in this film. On Tony Collette alone. Beautiful. On Tony Collette, 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 on Tony Collette. Tony Collette. Jonathan Rise Myers rocking like toxic raspberry blue hair for half the movie. Mm hmm. Like, this movie is so many things, and not all of them blend well together, but one thing I think this movie is really deeply and effectively is a love letter to the 70s glam metal scene. Specifically the 70s glam metal scene within England. Right, absolutely. Yeah, but it's a lot. This movie's so much, you guys. I texted your wife that it's uh, this movie is if Rocket Man fucked Moulin Rouge and then while Rocket Man was pregnant, it drank a glass of the Grand Budapest and then this movie came out as their love child. And Citizen Kane was the nurse in the delivery room. Who is looking over it going, wow, what a pretty baby. What a pretty baby. I wonder if it's gay. The answer is yes. Yes, this movie is so queer. (laughs) This movie is so, so queer. It's a little bit like bisexual joy to watch it. Sure. But then it's also like there's a whole bit about um, the commentary on the popularity of bisexuality, which is very much like what was happening in the 80s. Um, and 90s is like, oh, that's the thing that's popular to be. It's not an actual identity. It's just really popular. Right. A, a Somebody who wanted to delve into it probably deeper than I looked into it would be able to draw some sort of illusion between how the free love movement of the 60s kind of morphed into this more pop at the mall sexual identity fad thing. Ooh, I can do it for you. Okay. So you have the hippies who were trying to say, hey, we really shouldn't do this whole war thing. 
we really shouldn't go to Vietnam did all of this protesting, all of this philosophizing, all of this like open proclamation of peace and love are the way to go. That never happened. The war happened. And then like 15 years later, people are like, huh, what do you know it? The Vietnam War was a bad idea. And all of the hippies are like, it's like when a woman speaks in a meeting and then a dude says the same thing right after her. Oh, interesting. Okay. okay. And so then all the children of the hippies go on to be like, wow, my parents are like harsh and disingenuous and really let down. I wonder what happened to them. I'm going to be a spring fairy child and like wear a bunch of makeup. And then you have the children of the glam movement. Yeah. All right. I can Ta-da. see that. Very well done. Thank you. <laughs> but in case you missed it, Velvet Goldmine is so much. It's it's so much. It's so much more than we were <laughs> expecting. And like, if you read the synopsis, you get an impression of one thing. If you watch the trailer, you're like, oh, this is so much more than I thought. And then you watch the movie and it's secretly a bunch of other things that like you had no idea was coming. If you missed it, Velvet Goldmine is a a pseudo biopic about bisexual British rock sensation David Bowie, except all the names are changed and there's a very vindictive left turn into pure fiction regarding a faked assassination attempt that never really happened in real life, only lies! Because it's really about character Arthur Stewart, a British reporter living in 80s New York, confronting his repressed sexuality and love of 70s glam rock fads while trying to find out what happened to the story's quote-unquote not Bowie, Brian Slade. The entire time eventually reminiscing about that time Arthur fucked a rock star. Not only fucked a rock star, had his gay awakening, like... I have come into my own. This is who I am now. But yeah, also fucked a rock star. Yes. And and you know what? I want to dig into that, uh, what you just said a little. Uh, a little. Not the fucked a rock star part, but the had his gay awakening. Because this movie is two things. Like yeah. two big ideas. The first is we're going to do a biopic of david bowie only we're going to use the memoir of his ex-wife who hates his guts and someone else who didn't like him and we're going to build this fiction that is like just a straight up hatchet job on david bowie however you feel about him whether you think that's appropriate or not it is like a objectively like brutal take on who david bowie is as a person Oh my God, David Bowie's going to sue us. Quick, change all the names, change all the names. And the other big idea is it is a reflection on queer identity, bisexuality, homosexuality, how music and rock, especially the music and rock of the time, played with those ideas so much. And it is the story of a man who came into his sexual awakening in the 70s and then immediately found himself in New York at the height of the AIDS epidemic and very brilliantly, without even really ever talking about the AIDS epidemic, shows 
what that did to the man. Yeah. Because his demeanor is completely different. The way he holds himself, the way he talks. Um, And that's the more compelling story. Yes, that is the better movie. That is the more interesting thing to watch. That was what we both had a better time engaging with, was Christian Bale's storyline. Which you wouldn't think, oh, hey, the better part of this rock opera is the part where it's not a rock opera, but it's Philadelphia, except no one dies. Yeah. Well, maybe no one dies. Who's to say? Because there's also this weird assassination attempt. And did it happen? Did it not happen? Who's to say? Well, it objectively didn't happen because we see Brian Slade after the point where he was supposed to be killed. And it is Brian Slade. But then we never see him again after that. So it's like, where did he go? Is he truly this other person? Right. I mentioned Citizen Kane delivered this movie. And that is an intentional thing from director Todd Haynes, who was trying to do a Citizen Kane framed story where you have this larger-than-life figure. You have this person who is famous and beloved and respected, but is maybe actually kind of a troubled, soulless piece of shit. And we're going to examine this person through all the points of his life by talking to the people around him. Like, that's Citizen Kane. Yes. This movie is so many things, and the reason I keep saying that is because I realized halfway through writing my notes is that there this movie has a common theme with all of the other movies that I have a really hard time getting into. Sure. Is that the script had to change halfway through. Sure. And the script had to change halfway through because they didn't ask for permission. They found themselves having to ask for forgiveness because they didn't run this idea past David Bowie first. Yeah. Which if you're going to do a biopic of someone, you should maybe... I don't know, ask so you don't find yourselves a script in, a cast in, and a budget in before you realize, oh, hey, lads, we got to wipe the slate clean just enough to, like, not make it recognizable as Bowie, but also it's really still recognizable as Bowie, and we just have to fill in a couple extra lines and make and throw in this weird Oscar Wilde plot? Yeah, we haven't even talked about the Oscar Wilde thing. It was pretty clear what was happening. It happens every day. But for the world to think it was happening, well, that was Jerry's particular genius. It's this weird framing device where one of the background characters who's in all of 15 minutes in the movie is maybe Oscar Wilde's weird fairy child descendant. Yeah, it's so much more than that. The movie literally starts, the first two minutes of the movie, you're sitting here saying what the actual fuck is happening. Because we open in like 1820s uh, Dublin, Ireland, somewhere, wherever Oscar Wilde was born. And we see a flying saucer come in, deposit a baby who we are explicitly meant to take as is baby Oscar Wilde. And he's got this magic green pin that is like this thematic MacGuffin, the concept of boundary breaking, artistic achievement embodied in a thing that like, 
Oscar Wilde drops in a puddle one time, and then years later, young Jack Ferry, the character Jack Ferry, finds the pendant and becomes like the progenitor of the British glam rock scene. It's so... What? I just said that sentence out loud, and I'm sitting here like, what the shit? Okay, so... In the part of my mind that's like, okay, comparative analysis, it makes a lot of sense because we're drawing on brilliant and unwell minds like Bowie, like Oscar Wilde, like to a lesser extent, it wasn't actually supposed to be Kurt Cobain presenting Kurt Wilde, but there's a similarity there. Yeah. There is also a similarity to Jim Morrison. There is also a similarity to... um, Little Richard. Yeah. So it's all of these kind of tortured artists, so to speak, who are dealing with their inner struggles with their sexuality and who they are as a person. But also, ooh, it's because of a green amulet. Whoa. I can totally get behind the idea that, like, from a metaphorical sense, there is, like, this the soul of rock and roll, the soul of boundary-breaking superstardom. Because that's kind of what the thing is meant to represent. Sure. But they tie it to this, like, no, there's literally aliens who are responsible for it and maybe also responsible for, like, homosexuality? Who's Who's to to say? say... It's that part that you start to lose me, and it's only just now talking about it that it really clicks in my mind. They were trying to do this whole thing of like, whoa, remember how Ziggy Stardust said he was an alien, and David Bowie pretended to be a literal alien when he was, like, doing that era? You're only just now catching this? Well, the, the fact that they try to say Oscar Wilde's an alien, tying that part together. Oh, uh, okay. The reason like... the reason it's Oscar Wilde is an alien rock star is because they're trying to, like, do a bit about how David Bowie pretended to be an alien rock star. And really, Oscar Wilde is David Bowie in the Victorian era. Yeah! With all his fun burrowing. Bunburring. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, and it's just, it's so much. Every, the, the green pendant comes up again and again and again throughout the film, and I enjoy it every time except for its introduction. I, I think the first Fair. five minutes of this movie are bad. Okay, and our favorite segment, Andy and Stephanie edit an already existing movie how would you do this better i have to literally put aside my david bowie bias because my first instinct is i would make him a sympathetic character which he's not in this movie he's not we were talking about it and you were like man they just really did a hatchet job on him And I'm thinking about, okay, this is 1998, which means it was probably written in 1995, which means it was an idea probably around 1980-something, which is just when David Bowie was starting to clean up his act after the whole, you know, I'm gonna be a Nazi thing. Yes, absolutely. And that that, that is why, like, I'm sitting here having to pull myself back and totally own up to that. 
Because you're right. This is based off of books written by people who were around Bowie, regardless of whatever personal biases they might have had, were around Bowie during his, I'm going to do so much coke, I'm going to start to think maybe Hitler wasn't so bad days. That's a lot of coke. It's a lot of coke. Um, but specifically just, I would get out of, I, I think trying to bring Oscar Wilde into this is trying to do a little too much. Mm. I think trying to make some sort of claim that Oscar Wilde was the David Bowie of the Victorian era to just like kind of try to say that, which is what the movie does isn't is too much and is also not enough right so you either make the movie like literally half of the movie is about oscar wilde and half of the movie is about david bowie brian slade or you just cut out the oscar wilde of it all and they try to tie it in really nicely like they have a couple of oscar wilde quotes yeah um there's a couple of scenes where oscar there's a couple of scenes where oscar wilde books are out on tables um, or the spines are pointing out in different shots. So there's definitely an attempt to be like, look at what we're doing here. But it really doesn't land. And it's one of those cases of you could have cut 15 minutes or you could have added another 45. Right. And either way. And, and I don't think anyone is looking for a two and a half hour long David Bowie biopic. Really? Not even you? Not even me, surprisingly. Wow. <laughs> um, but I I think that part just becomes really muddy. Yeah, it's a, it's a bad framing device. Though, granted, we have a really fantastic voiceover, which lends a really nice fairy tale tinge to it. But sure. then it's not let off in the end. So it's not really a framing device. It's like, here, we stuck some junk up front to make all of these choices work. It's the same kind of thing where just like the first the first five minutes of this film are wild. You've got the voiceover. You've got the Oscar Wilde aliens. You've got the, the jump cut to the 60s glam rock montage with all the crazy fonts and bright colors and and young londoners running around in their makeup and fishnets having a, a good time like you get some whiplash it's a lot it's if you it's a lot if the makeup didn't set the time frame the fonts would because like they're all big and bubbly and you're like wait we were in victorian england two seconds ago right also why were we in victorian england i literally wasn't expecting that and the second I was like, oh, okay, I guess we're in Victorian England. You're like, no, we're in mod England. <laughs> um, maybe this is just me wanting there to be a connection, but the coloring of the Victorian England framing device was really similar to Labyrinth. Oh, interesting. And it was kind of dreamy and weird like Labyrinth is. Yes, definitely. Where it's like, we're not really going to explain it to you. We're just going to show you that Oscar Wilde is a weird alien baby. It, it was the magical realism of it all, which like three times in this movie and three times alone, they go super magical realism. Like what is happening on stage is not what's actually happening, but we're conveying the emotion more accurately. And the fact that it only happens three times is so jarring. <laughs> 
but you needed to see Jonathan Rise Myers coated head to toe in blue paint and glitter. Oh, that part was the one I was the most okay with because I just thought that was another music video. <laughs> it is, but then that's also the point where they like turned the camera and suddenly there was like a wall-esque jury judging them for making out. True. Very true. And they're like, no, boo, you're gay. Break wow. down the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Different 70s band, right? 70s? I mean, is it right, Aaron? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not the biggest Pink Floyd fan. Alex is going to be mad at both of us. Oh, that's fine. You are married and living in North London. I am married. Quite happily, in fact. I just happen to like boys as much as I like girls. And since as my wife feels pretty much the same about such things. Fun fact. So in this movie, Brian Slade are not David Bowie. It's it's like they make this assertion that, oh, he watched old vaudeville acts and... That was what inspired him. And also we saw somebody blowing a guy and that's what inspired him in a different way. In real life, a younger David Bowie was going to Pink Floyd concerts and like getting inspired by them. The other big thing I would change about this film is how it was marketed. Because I truly think there was some executive meddling or something. The, the poster is just all about, look at how sexy Jonathan Rhys Myers and young Ewan McGregor are. And fair. They're very pretty. They're very pretty. Um, then you watch the trailer to the film, and it is all about, like, Christian Bale is an investigative reporter, and he's the one who's going to find out who killed Brian Slade. And so as the audience member, you're sitting there being like, well, that one was clearly the, the David Bowie allegory, and it looks like he just got shot on stage in 1973. What the fuck? Okay, yeah, I guess that's why they didn't call him David Bowie, because that didn't happen. I'm going to be really interested in this mystery. And then you watch the film, and ten minutes in, you see Brian Slade get shot... And then 12 minutes in, like, literally, you and I had just enough time to write, like, holy shit, they killed Jonathan Rhys Myers. Okay, uh, that's not historically accurate, but I guess we're doing a thing. We got that far into thinking about it before they were like, yeah, wasn't it really fucked up how Brian Slade faked his own death as a publicity stunt? And so now you're sitting here like, but that was like the point of the fucking trailer. You you built me up to think this was at least going to be some crazy rock and roll mystery type of thing. This is a vision. This is an audio media and you can't see it. I have done so many like shoulder side to side. You motions. look like you're trying to be in a surf video in the 60s. I'm trying to nestle into a frame of understanding to actually like this movie because <laughs> i think that's what happens at the end of it there are parts of this movie that i really enjoyed but overall i don't know if i liked it that's fair because it's four different movies yeah and like every movie we watch where the script has to change in the last oh i don't know two years of production it's not good because it's a rewrite of a rewrite of oh fuck we have to change this and it's just, it. there is not enough time to fix that. And I don't no. think it would get away with that in today's 
film society? No, I mean, so I don't know how much of like an indie film this was. It had a fairly smaller budget, I think I just saw here. It had a fairly small release. And like the director of the movie, Todd Haynes, he's not super well known for anything. Although weirdly, the other films he is most well known for are that Bob Dylan biopic from 10 years ago where six different people played Bob Dylan. Yes. Including Kate Blanchett. And the movie Carol, which came out like five years ago. And is this really like, I haven't seen it, but people have told me wonderfully sapphic 1920s New York love story that a lot of people enjoyed and was also Oscar nominated. So what what I'm building up to here is Todd Haynes clearly loves rock and roll and is a proud gay man. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what making this film in 1998 looked like through those two perspectives. Well, we were saying it's one of the most graphic movies sexually that we've watched. Yes, absolutely. Because we full-on see fellatio just happen. You... Uh, I didn't know Ewan McGregor was uncut. Do now. Yeah, that's that's the, uh, the real quick. Here's the immature sales pitch, y'all. If you want to see Ewan McGregor's cock, this is the movie to see because it is on full display for an entire like minute. And if you want to see a movie in which Obi Wan Kenobi fucks Batman, this is the film for you. This is the film for you. <laughs> But to your to all that to say, this is an incredibly erotic film. Yeah. This is an incredibly queer erotic film. And I think for being made in the late 90s, that is something to like celebrate and champion. This came out a year before But I'm a Cheerleader. Yeah. So we were going through this cinematic queer acceptance, gay power awakening before it's... 24 years later and it feels like we've taken a half step back but I appreciated that aspect of it yeah I like how gay this movie is I like how unapologetically gay this movie is I like that it expresses positive bisexuality that it's not that he breaks up with Tony Collette's character of Mandy because she's a woman and he realizes he's gay he leaves Tony Collette's character because he has found someone who he idolizes and believes in so much more and who he becomes deeply and dangerously obsessed with. And also maybe he's some sort of music sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I get really worried about Kurt because about halfway through the movie, I totally get why people were thinking Kurt Cobain. No. Because he's got the long, blonde, stringy, in-your-face hair. Well, and this came out like six months after Kurt Cobain died. So just a lot of people visually saw a a radical rock star named Kurt with long, blonde hair and thought that he was supposed to be Kurt Cobain. And I can see why that didn't go over well. No, for sure. 
Well, and I think there's some, uh, like everyone in this movie has like a pseudo person they are. And I think you don't have to draw too many straws to see that Mandy could be Courtney Love. Courtney Love. Sure. I, I see that. I especially see how like a um, somebody who's just walking into some theater in New York and watching this could walk away with that impression. Me being a rock and roll history snob, I struggled. I, I read the part where everyone thought that Ewan Gregor was Kurt Cobain, and I was like, I don't, I don't get it because he's so clearly Iggy Pop. Mm. Which he he is his character is meant to be a composite of both Iggy Pop and Lou Reed, just in one human body. But it of the motherfucking times. No, that's Morris Day. God damn it. <laughs> Who's Lou Reed? Lou Reed is a rock star whom David Bowie basically discovered and also had a sexual relationship with that then led to them having a falling out. Lou Reed is like this Tom Waits-esque motherfucker. He looks... Like a chimpanzee married a raisin. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, the the aspect where so many characters were based off real people really started to throw me through a loop. Mm-hmm. Because, like, okay, you've got Brian Slade, a.k.a. David Bowie, and his on-screen persona is Maxwell Demon, a.k.a. Ziggy Stardust. And you've got Kurt Wilde, who's Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. And you've got Mandy Slade, who's Amber Bowie. And you've got this person, who's this person. And then you've got Jack Ferry. Who's no one. Who is no one. And it's so maddening because Jack Ferry is the first like named character we're introduced to. Christian Bale runs by him on the street with his friends and somebody goes, oh my God, that's Jack Ferry. And you're like, okay, okay. I, I, he's clearly some glam metal person. Is he, is he Brian Eno? Is he, is he Mick Ronson? Who, who is he? And the director's like, oh no, he's nobody. <laughs> he is Little Richard if Little Richard had been in glam rock. And was white. And was white. And that's insane. That's an insane thing when your conceit is we're doing 70s British glam and we're changing everybody's name to then just throw in this motherfucker who is a plot device with legs. But he kind of looks like Marilyn Manson. He kind of looks like Marilyn Manson. So for two seconds, I was like, is that? That would make this movie a lot grosser. And no. Fair. Another thing is that is somebody by the name of Nico Westmoreland who has done no other movies. And I'm like, is he a musician? No, he's not a musician. I don't know who the fuck Nico Westmoreland is, but Todd Haynes was like, do you want to be this really important character in my movie? And he was like, sure. And then didn't have a career in either media after that. See, Harold was my main man. Uh, But now I'm on the methadone and I'm getting my act together. And you come here and say, 
you want to help. And I say, hey, you could be my main man. But yeah, it was just, it was, it was really, really interesting to me. So. There's a lot of left turns in this movie. The, um, about 40 minutes into the part where, okay, Brian Slade is an actual rock star. Mm. Uh, he hires a new agent who is played by Eddie Susan Izzard. Indeed. And that's a whole loop and a half because I didn't know Eddie Izzard was in any major roles in any major movies. I just thought they were a stand-up. Fair. I mean, you've seen some of Hannibal with me and Eddie Izzard is in Hannibal. Okay, Yes. I've seen some other movies Eddie Izzard is when if, if you want to fucking trip, he's in a World War II movie where he plays a Nazi, and it's a lot. Interesting. Granted, the movie's Valkyrie, and everybody in it is German. It's about the plot to kill Adolf Hitler, so he's like a quote-unquote good Nazi, but like... Oh, sure, like David Bowie was. <laughs> Before he stopped doing coke. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Eddie Izzard walks in and is like, hello, I'm Eddie Susan Izzard. I'm going to own this motherfucking movie for 15 minutes and then walk back out of it. Well, and he does that in this movie, except he's there for a lot longer than 15 minutes. Right. But the most what the fuck moment is that he brings someone in, says, hey, you're here to apply to be a receptionist. Great. You're now our costume and closet director which apparently was like so that woman um the character's name is the character's name is shannon she's played by an actress named emily wolf and apparently she's based off a real human person who was in david bowie's entourage and that was like this oh we're so artistic we're going to just pick somebody off the street and say, you're the head of the costume department now because that's how little it matters. But also that's how brilliant you are, some random person off the street. So that was all based in reality. How much Coke? So, so much, much Coke. Coke. Like, I'm going to fuck my keyboard Coke. I'm going to fillet a guitar Coke. Yeah. Also based in reality. Oh, no, Really? Yeah, there's a bit in the movie where um, Brian Slade and Kurt Wilde are playing together and Kurt is playing guitar on stage and Brian, like, fucking tongue fucks the guitar strings and is, like, yeah, looking like he is directly in the lap of Kurt Wilde. That is a real thing that David Bowie would do with his guitarist, Mick Ronson, during the Ziggy Stardust era. That's my thing. There are so many, like, shot for shot. This is exactly, this couldn't be anything other than David Bowie. There's a fucking bit in this where Brian Slade is doing a music video in, like, 70s England on the telly. And Christian Bale's watching it. And I turned to you and I was like, I know exactly what music video they're talking about here. Like, I can see it in my head. <laughs> yeah. It is so perplexing. It was such a hard, like, we are going to say it with our entire chest. This is David Bowie. Oh, fuck. He's going to sue us. This is Brian Slade. Can we, can we make his name Savid Joey? 
No, that's too close. Okay. Too close. Okay. Brian Slade. That sounds better. It's crazy. And Um, like we said, the better plot is Christian Bale's character and going through his own crisis of identity, discovering he's gay, dealing with rejective parents, having a heart-wrenching scene when he runs away and there is no sound, which is one of my favorite things when movies do, and realizing this entirely changes who I am. And that's the better movie. And if it had just been that, it would have been great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you still could have made this movie and had the poster and everything and just like... You make one left turn at the beginning, which is like, haha, this is actually about Christian Bale's character. And then you leave the left turn there. Right. And you keep going down that pleasant road. Yeah. Maybe not pleasant. You keep going down that very interesting road. That very interesting road, that road that allows you to talk about clearly what you actually want to talk about, which is the AIDS crisis and the toll it took on not only the people who died in it, but the people who survived it. That's what the green gemstone is. Because they pass it. Mm, Interesting. Because they pass it down. And there's one point where Jack Ferry passes him the green gemstone thingy, earring, whatever. Yeah. And he's like, no, I don't want it. And then... Jack Ferry drops it in his drink. Right. It could very well be some other metaphor. It doesn't necessarily have to be the AIDS crisis, but there is something to be said of like, it's this thing that passes from male rock star to male rock star to male journalist. I think what it is, I think, I think what it is actually meant to be is like the passion, the passion and and the love for the thing the thing being like rock and and art for its own sake but then how does oscar wilde get it he's just a baby yeah he's the baby alien who's born with it which is why he writes so many bemusing plays and then dies in like a courthouse or whatever happened to him maybe he's born with it maybe it's a weird rock star dust maybe he's born with it maybe he's an alien (laughs) but yeah it it passes along it it goes to jack ferry um brian slade literally steals it in a moment that i like squealed i thought it was actually brilliantly well done jack ferry's wearing it like an earring and brian like who doesn't know him walks up and makes out with him because they're two beautiful strangers and then like kind of like cups his ear and accident not accidentally but like steals the earring and that's the moment when brian slade's career shoots up like a rocket ship and jack ferry sinks down and then jack meets kurt wilde and falls in love with him and his passion and gives him the pendant and kurt wilde is the one who goes on to have like a more artistically valid and interesting music career while brian slade becomes this soulless corporate pop rock robot who literally has to get plastic surgery and change his name question mark and then like kurt wilde fucks christian bale's character and they meet 15 years later when Kurt Wilde doesn't remember this one guy because that was one 
beautiful one-night stand in a sea of thousands of them, but sees that Arthur has this drive and this passion and this integrity for the thing that is glam rock, which is why he, like, slips the pendant into his beer because it just has to go to him now. And there is something great about that. There is. And there's nothing in the movie that actually, like, supports that theory other right. than assumption. Right. You could say it has no interest in holding your hand. You could say it is just going a mile a minute and you can't think too much about it. Either one could be right. It's Mr. Toad's wild ride. Sometimes I wonder if I'm still alive. Indeed. It's it's a lot. Some other things that I didn't uh, appreciate about this film. The most prominent actor of color has no lines. Yikes. Which, this is Britain in the 70s. There are people of all creeds and colors. And there are several actors of color in this movie it's just the one you see the most has no lines and the one who does has the most lines like her biggest scene is when Brian Slade's doing coke off her ass. Yikes. Big yikes. Big woof. Um, I want to I, I want to address the David Bowie of it all because you made a really good point that like. I truly believe there is a moment you can stick a pin in David Bowie's career, which is the turnaround moment and the redemptive moment. And this is presumably written before that moment happens. I get that. And I think even with that said, this is a purposefully attacking rendition of David Bowie. Brian Slade is the there is nothing ever good about Brian Slade. You don't get a moment where like, oh yeah, I'm rooting for you, Brian Slade. Because he just kind of he just kind of walks around brooding and beautiful, and everyone else like projects, oh my god, you're gonna be a star on him, and he's just kind of looking sad at a guy he wants to fuck. And then like he gets really caught up in, oh, I'm a star. Oh, I'm going to take weird pictures and music videos. And, oh, the fame makes me feel empty inside. And, oh, it's all I have, though. So I'm going to, again, like, do really soulless things to try and hold on to it. And there's just nothing nuanced or good about it. And I think you could make a movie wherein you're like, yeah, David Bowie was kind of a sociopathic piece of shit in the 70s. And give us something to like about who is ostensibly our primary main character of the film. I think the only moment where Brian Slade is likable is when we first are introduced to him with Mandy. Yeah. Where he is fresh on the road, freshly doing gigs, is still a little bit floundering is starting to understand his voice yeah and is kind of a baby and that's when he's endearing because he isn't yet stuck up on himself right 
and then anytime he gets any inch of credit, it's downhill fast. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a movie that's on the list called Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and it's an amazing rock opera. And without spoiling too much for you and the listeners, there is a character who kind of fits the same archetype, and they do it so much better in that story. Mm. Uh, but so that's kind of one of the reasons why I sit here and go like, Tony Collette was great. Eddie Sarah Izzard was great. Ian McGregor is the best part of this movie. Yes. Like Kurt Wilde, Ian McGregor is like the thing you go and, and talk about this movie about. Christian Bale is fine. Like he's he's doing good with what he's given. Jonathan Rhys Myers doesn't do a bad acting job. I just think he was written into a tiny little box. And when Jonathan Rhys Myers is the top build character of the movie, and I list everything I just said, that creates this weird dissonance. That creates part of why, like, I kind of walk away going like, oh, I really thought I was going to like that more. But because it didn't Bowie Bowie enough. No, 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 not even that. Like that, I know, I know you're trying to tease me, and that is a fair thing to say. It's not that it didn't Bowie Bowie enough. It's that it went, hey, our, our main character is kind of an irredeemable piece of shit, but you're gonna have to watch him the most anyway. Mm. Hey, our main character sucks, and we're not even gonna lean into it in a fun way, like uncut gems or some movie like that it's just we're just going to repeatedly tell you hey this guy sucks here are all these more interesting characters you can watch but we're going to come back to this guy who sucks isn't that citizen kane eh? isn't it that citizen kane kind of sucks eh? isn't that the whole point i mean you're you're, you're right yes I'm, I'm giving you the confused noise of yeah i guess you're right Yes, I know. I'm brilliant. But no, truly, like, that's my understanding of Citizen Kane is here is this person who drew so many more interesting people to him, and yet their lives revolved around him. So sure. they're telling about him without realizing that they are the more interesting part. I like that. I like that a lot. I think that's that's Thanks. good. Also, I'm I'm realizing in real time... Citizen Kane was also written by somebody who was actively trying to do a hatchet job of the person who it was about. So it really is following in that movie's archetype. <laughs> and it's fair because it's looking at this person who has a really, really difficult personality and time to crack. So it's not exactly like, oh, yes, David Bowie, totally easy to understand guy and not at all morally gray. Sure. So we're going to take roughly two hours to unpack this and pull at the threads and realize that at the end of the day, his interactions with other people was what mattered. And here are all of the definitions of the people who knew him. So many times we talk and you've told me like, you know what, that actually helped salvage the movie for me a bit. That actually helped salvage the movie for me a bit. Oh my god, I'm so glad I could do it back for you at some point. For sure. That said, this is uh, the cultiest cult movie in the cult for a minute. Oh, I don't even know if I... I, I guess? In terms of, like, 
aesthetic. This sure. is so bizarre in terms of oh, script. Sure. This is so weird. I, I I agree with that. I mean, it's it is the gayest movie we've ever seen. It is more queer than But I'm a Cheerleader, and that opened with like a bunch of female gays close ups on boobs. Did you say that was female gays? I'd say that was more male gays because it was a lot of bouncing titties. Fair enough. Well, that's my point. This is more gay. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree with you. I would say this is on par gay with Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Yes, absolutely. This, in a weird way, has a lot of parallels that I'm just now realizing. Kind of campy, kind of vaudeville, really focused on a specific glimpse in time. Listeners, if you want a a, a, a tr- quadruple feature of a weekend, go ahead and watch this. Watch But I'm a Cheerleader. Watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And watch Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And just have yourself a, nine, a late 90s queer movie <laughs> marathon and see how you feel at the end of it. I think you start with Priscilla... And you end with, but I'm a cheerleader. Like, you should probably go in, like, chronological order. Sure. But that's that's delightful. Neither here nor there, but that's exciting. <laughs> Speaking of what makes this movie exciting, I think it's cult. Do you think it's cult? Oh, no, I, I agree. I think it's okay. cult. I, I get lost in the, oh, what a... What a queer movie for the 90s. Like, this is like the fourth time I've talked about it. But like, what a what a queer movie. And I say that all caps, thumbs up. That's a positive thing. I think it is cult. I think, I think it is weird. I think it has that kind of appeal where you either love it or you hate it. You either sit here and go, I didn't like that as much as I thought it, I would. Or you're sitting there going like, holy fucking shit, that was the best movie ever. I wish I could go back to the 70s and do coke in a club in London. Off of someone's ass? Off of someone's ass. Sure, I guess. <laughs> I think this is cult. I I always bristle against the movies that I must agree are cult, but are not necessarily for me. Mm. But I'll go work through that later. <laughs> I understand it not being for you. Yeah. I think... If you're a fan of Bowie at all, and you're a avid is the word I'm going to choose. Sure. I don't think this is for you because you'll get defensive. Mm-hmm. As you have, Clearly, yeah. As you have so proven. Clearly, yes, indeed. But I also think it's, it's a bit under-edited. And as we spent so much time looking at different movies and realizing that the pitfall of scripts is when they don't get that final spit shine, yeah. it increasingly becomes clear when a script isn't finished. And this one wasn't. No, for sure. This needed a couple more drafts, a couple cuts. And there, there's something good in there, which kind of makes it harder. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it makes it harder to turn down. You know what's not harder to turn down? Kevin Bacon. I know. If you walked through that door right now and was like, guys, I came back to Asheville. I heard your other episode about me. We'd be like, oh my God, Kevin Bacon. Oh my God, Kevin Bacon, come on in. (laughs) 
and so yes, yeah, so let's go ahead and play five uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. How many degrees? Five degrees of Kevin Bacon. We're making it harder. The police pull me over for major violations all the time. You don't know what it's like to be treated like a criminal. What's it like? Bad. Wow. I've never broken the law in my life, Peter. I'm a 42-year-old man. I own a business, I pay my taxes, and yet I gotta deal with this crap every time I step outside my house. It makes me so damn angry, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, you should be like me. Whenever I get angry, I go do some footloose dancing. Also thinking about ice creams. <laughs> well, that's fine. I did it in too. Okay. Because of course I used uh, the brilliant Tony Collette, who was in your favorite movie, Hereditary. <laughs> I'm never gonna watch that movie again. <laughs> with Anne Dowd. Okay. Anne Dowd was in Taking Chance with Kevin Bacon. Okay. I have no idea what taking chance is, but I'm going to take your word for it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I also did it in two. I did it a little differently. Um, Christian Bale is in, honestly, a really good brooding Western that came out a few years ago called Hostiles with Jesse Plemons. And Jesse Plemons was in Black Mass which I think I've used more times than Apollo 13 at this point. And I really, like, this is me officially saying I am taking a break from linking stuff to Black Mass with Kevin Bacon. Fair enough. <laughs> you know what I'm not going to take a break from? Oscars? Oscars. Because you almost forgot about that one? No. I could never forget about Oscars because every movie deserves at least a couple, whether it got actual recognition in an award circuit or not. Which this movie super didn't. Super didn't. This was art house all the way, baby. Baby, although it was nominated for best costume design, which doesn't surprise oh, me. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, it did win a BAFTA. Okay, so it, did, it, it got like... A smattering. It got a sprinkling of glitter of recognition, which is kind of thematically appropriate. Little... Right into Jonathan Reismeyer's face, which was covered in glue. <laughs> glue. Glue. Sure, yeah. Sure, glue. sure. Glue. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what is your Oscar? My Oscar, we've talked around it, danced around it, and I think that reinforces why it's my Oscar. For Velvet Goldmine, I would like to give it the Oscar for most obvious attempt to not get sued <laughs> in film. Yeah. Because, like, it is shocking how mirror, how, how they held up a mirror to David Bowie's life and were going to make a movie about it. And he was like, I am going to fucking sue you. I'm going to get litigious. 
and they were like, oh my God, oh my God, what are we going to do? We've already shot the moot. We've already uh, 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 changed this name, changed this name, changed everybody's fucking names. That's all we can change. It's very clearly about David Bowie, but we can make it just enough so that it gets past a court of law. Let's let's weirdly shoot like an Oscar Wilde scene and give him a weird gem and then let's pass the gem around and like take a couple shots and exactly. it'll be fine, guys. Fun fact, David Bowie went on to watch Velvet Goldmine, went on to watch this film and his professional critique was like, yeah, I didn't like it. Like, I don't think it was very good. The music video parts were really good. That was the best part of the movie. The parts that were directly based on me were really good. <laughs> the parts that I could have made that 20 years ago <laughs> were really good. The parts that, like, made me think about things I did 20 years ago, I didn't like those parts. <laughs> Weird! <laughs> that works but what is your oscar i mean speaking of his music videos i would like to give this uh movie the oscar for best bop to the whole shebang Mm, okay and so which one was that for the listeners Uh, i will go ahead and put a drop in it I enjoyed that. I I also enjoyed the song 20th Century Boy. Yes, very good. Very good. The songs were good. Hilariously, the entire time I was sitting here going like, it's like they wrote shitty David Bowie songs. (laughs) And then turns out I'm the asshole because those are a bunch of real life Brian Eno songs and New York Dolls songs and T-Rex songs. It's just that most glam rock sounds like a shitty David Bowie song. Not that you're opinionated at all. Of course not. No, but let's see if you're going to be opinionated about our next movie. Oh, I certainly hope so, because I feel like that's when it is good for recording, whether or not it is a good movie or not. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, But yes, as we do on every episode of Cult Fiction, what we're going to do now is put our hands into the fate of the Hollywood crypt through the 271 random number generator list that I've got pulled up here. Uh, We recently had an addition to that list courtesy of Chris. Thank you, Chris. I did, in fact, add the Dungeon Master to this film. To the, oh, to I'm list. so excited. But next time on Cult Fiction, we're going to be watching number 209. Oh, shit. Number 209 is a Guillermo del Toro horror movie called The Devil's Backbone. <gasps> I'm so excited. Oh, hell yes. Thank you, Crypt. Just in time for spooky season. Just in time for spooky season. We didn't even plan that. Although this is our October episode, by the way. I'm still counting it for spooky season. It'll come out in the beginning of November. Well, you know. Everyone will be just primed for something scary 
and then Guillermo del Toro is going to make us uh, think of the scariest thing of all, the Spanish Civil War. As is tradition. Indeed. Um, let's make sure where you can find the devil's backbone. At time of recording, it is available on YouTube and Vudu for rent and Amazon Prime if you have a subscription to Amazon Prime. Okay, sweet. It's free on Prime, y'all. <laughs> If you have a subscription to Selling Your Souls. <laughs> well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we dive into the horrors of a Spanish boys' orphanage during the Spanish Civil War. Oh, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, no, this is going to get fucking dark. Oh, I'm so excited. On the next episode of Cult Fiction, for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel. sit here and totally jive with the idea that like do you jive or do you fuck <laughs> got the most genuine laugh love it